Thank you, Mackenzie. Morning, everybody. For those of you who are visiting today, my name is Ben. I want you to know that and know that after the service, I'll kind of hang around in the back there. I'd love to meet you. We have been in a series on the gospel according to Mark for a long time. Today's text, um, as I prepared it this week and thought about it, it was like it grabbed me by the jugular and punched me straight in the face. It was a very intense moment, and I think that it's going to challenge us as a body as well. So, to begin, uh, I would say I want to start with a different story, and that was related to my block this week, five days ago. Five days ago on Tuesday, I was uh, sitting in my kitchen, sitting in my kitchen in the evening with my family, and everything is peaceful, and it's quiet. And we're enjoying that sort of evening lull where things are winding down. And then my daughter Annabelle, she's eight years old, stares out the window looking at something that I could not see. And she starts screaming, oh, oh, dad, there's a fire, there's a fire. No, that immediately messed up my cozy sort of consoling equilibrium in the home. Okay, it, it, it jostled me up, um, and it was outside of my will or outside of my control. So Allie and I are the co-leaders of our home. We're the mutual leaders, and we, we set the tone in the house, not the eight-year-old. And, and we did not decide that we wanted our house to go into upheaval at that moment. We never approved of this sort of serious disturbing of the peace, uh, if you will. So my first reaction to Annabelle is, calm down, jeez, you know, she's kind of freaking out, and I, and I just immediately don't like that anxiety she brings to the scene, and I want it to go away, and I want to go back to that cozy equilibrium that we had. Annabelle had jostled me. She destabilized me. And the change made me immediately anxious. <laughs> and then I looked out the window. <laughs> I kind of peeked around and I looked out the window. There's this 80-foot dug fir tree literally erupting into flame and a massive column of black smoke rising into the air. And sure enough, down the street, the, the corner house had caught fire. And it was, it was engulfed in orange flame. I mean, it was dramatic. Well, within a minute or two, you can imagine, all of us neighbors kind of just sort of emerged out of our backyards and front yards and garages, uh, all carrying a cell phone, you know, like, like zombies. Oh, oh, oh. And then you feel the warmth as you get closer. You know, you're 30 yards away from this house. You can feel it warm. But we're all sitting there, and it's just, it's just paralyzing the way that it feels. We're, we're sitting there kind of murmuring to one another. I don't know, you know how it started? I don't know, is everybody out? I don't know, should we go out? I don't know what to do. And, I'm, and I don't know what to do. I'm frozen in this moment. Who am I in relationship to what's going on? Should I kind of like try to get in there? I see the owner is out in his yard. He seems to be okay, but I, I uh, and I'm unsure. And so I just kind of stay frozen. And, and I'm taking a video. I'm, I go to my journalist roots and say, oh, I'll, I'll take a video and send it into the news station, <laughs> you know. But we're all anxious. We're nervous. We don't know what to do. And then, rrr, rrr, 
in comes the fire truck. And out comes the fireman. Now, what is he like? He's fully protected in his firefighting gear. He's got a sweet axe. I coveted it briefly. <laughs> Just briefly. He comes out, and he goes straight up to the owner, and he asks a question. Is there anybody in there? Are there any animals? He knows exactly what to do. He comes right into the scene. The crowds around him are nervous. We're worrisome. But the group of firefighters was not at all. And after him, 15 more trucks came in, right? What's the difference between these two groups? The firefighter and then the rest of us all hanging out. Well, us bystanders are experiencing a scary change in our neighborhood. It's something dramatic is happening. And it's a change to the way things were. And we don't know what to do about it. I was not the only one who felt dumbfounded in that moment. The fireman, however, knew exactly what to do. And I think there's three things that I see in our biblical passage today that I could even connect to this fireman, all right? I think that he was firmly rooted in his identity. He knew who he was. I'm a fireman. That's, what I, that's who I am. In relationship to this scenario, I know who I am. He had a mission. He knew what he was about, what he was there to do. He knew the principles that he had been trained with, the core truths, okay? So he didn't come in and, and like throw down a public opinion poll. Hey, neighborinos, what do you want me to do here? Should I, what, what does most of you want to happen, you know? He came in and he said, is there anybody in the house? Are there any animals? He wasn't asking what should happen. He wasn't taking people's assessments. He just did it. I'd say that he was a non-anxious leader who was not distracted by all of us who were standing there in crippling, paralyzing fear of this house that was just erupting into flame. Now, think back through our last year here in the gospel according to Mark. Jesus is stirring the pot at just about every turn, is he not? Isn't he tweaking and provoking and challenging the systems and the way that things were? The equilibrium is destabilized when Jesus enters into the room. And everyone wants to gather around him too. Before we get to the end of Mark chapter 1, we see Mark saying things like, everyone from the countryside came out to see him. Everyone from inside the Jerusalem went out to see him. There was this major, what's going on? And I think people came for various reasons. Some for sure out of curiosity. Some came out of anger. Right off the bat, who is this guy stirring the pot? He's not doing things the way that things are supposed to be done. I think just like my daughter in the kitchen. Jesus was kind of standing up on a chair yelling, fire, fire. And then just like the alley and Ben, my wife and I co-leading our home, the Pharisee, Sadducee, Sanhedrin co-leaders of the people immediately got anxious about it and nervous. We didn't ask for this equilibrium to be disrupted. We didn't set that tone, and we're the tone setters. It's our job to set the tone. Who's this guy coming in? Jesus is focusing their attention on major problems that they could not see. Jesus is all like, 
Your little self-righteous empire is coming to an end. You, who God set in this world to be a blessing to all the people, instead, you have become enslaving toward your own people and condemning toward all. You've totally, you've gone backwards on why God, you lost your identity and your mission and your principles. And they're all like, okay, wow. <laughs> That's not what we prefer to hear, bro. That is not the kind of stuff we We deserve honor and respect because we have been here longer than you and because we're noteworthy and because we're well-trained We've read our Bible more than you have. You need to change your messaging, Jesus. And Jesus kind of says, yeah, uh, not happening. Same message. It's the same message. I'm not going to change it because you're upset. Your fake empire is over, and in its stead will be the real kingdom of God. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. And I'm not here to take a public opinion poll on whether you like that or not. Reality and truth and goodness are coming to anchor into this world right now. And now they grow fearful and anxious and angry. And they murmur and they grumble. Just like the Israelites back in the anxiety-producing deserts of their wandering. Murmuring and grumbling. Who is this maniac? Who does he think he is? It's time for him to die. I think of that scene in Joseph's narrative. Don't you see it? Where the brothers are all sitting there and they're jealous and upset about the way that Joseph has disrupted their family equilibrium. And they hate him and they conspire and plot against him. How are we going to get rid of this Joseph? Well, that brings us to this morning's scene that Mackenzie's read for us. I've told you already, this one grabs me personally as a, as a pastor, as a man. I look at this and I say, this is a challenging text for me. I believe it's a wake-up call for all of us here as a congregation, as a body of believers. We need to pay attention here. We live in anxious times, my friends. I don't think you need me to uh, make a strong argument for that. You know it. You feel it every day. We're either going to lead with Jesus as a community or we're going to follow the world in fear as a community of confusion and gloom. We're either going to lead with Jesus as a community of light and hope or we're going to follow this world as a community in confusion and gloom. Which one are we going to do? Jesus did not put us in this world to follow the world. All right. Mark 14, 53. Let's pick it up there. They took Jesus to the high priest. Mark doesn't call him Caiaphas. We know it's Caiaphas from the other gospels. So they took Jesus to see the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law. They all came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. Peter might look a little cowardly in this scene. I think I've always thought of that. Notice, 
There's no other disciple in the crew who's with Jesus right now, just Peter. And he followed him right into the belly of the beast. There's some courage in Peter for sure. All right. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they couldn't find any. Wow. Couldn't find any. Many testified falsely against him. That's what you got to do. I've got no real evidence. Let's make something up. Many testified falsely, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and they gave this false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with human hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. <laughs> Notice this is a, they're, they're making a charge. He, he is a terrorist with a cell group. And we heard him say he was going to come in and terrorize this town by blowing up the temple, okay? That's, that's kind of the language. We heard, him, we heard him make a threat against our city and our temple. We heard him say that. But their testimony, they couldn't even get the fake story to line up. That's an interesting point. Well, you've got to say, I guarantee many of us are saying, what is, what is the Sanhedrin here? What are these guys? Think, think governing body. And in this case that we see, don't think, uh, you think like a grand jury. They're gathering together to sort of prepare a charge that they could bring to the people who could actually enforce it, which would be the Roman guard, okay? They don't have the capacity legally to carry out the death penalty. So they're preparing a charge here. They're opening up this trial. 71 members make up the Sanhedrin. They had to have at least 23 on hand uh, to make a decision or to reach a quorum. And then, according to the Mishnah, and the Mishnah comes after the time we're looking at, but it helps us to see some of the traditions that were established. According to the Mishnah, they had to meet in the, the House of Hewn Stone, which was in the temple precinct. If they didn't meet there, any judgment they made didn't count. Kind of like if a county judge comes into your living room and pronounces you guilty of something, you're like, this doesn't count, dude. There's no jury or witness. You can't just come wherever you want and make judgments. So that was a big thing. And it was arranged kind of like our sanctuary here. They had this semicircle. They all sat around and conversed and debated and so forth. So they had to be there if it was going to count. Then any judgment, or sorry, any witness that didn't, fit with another witness, they were real sticklers on that testimony was therefore void. So you had to have at least two witnesses to bring a charge against somebody. And then if there were even minor details that didn't match up, they rendered both testimonies false and would disregard it. It wasn't, you couldn't have it in the, in the case, all right? Um, then there's a reason I'm telling you all these too, because if you see it in the opening lines there, they break all these rules. Then they had to, if they were going to bring a death penalty judgment to somebody, they had to wait for one full night to pass after the judgment to allow room for a merciful change of heart, if you will. So they couldn't just say, kill him, and then kill him right away. They could say, kill him, and then they had to wait a full night to pass. Well, we know they're in the middle of the night here. This is just right after Gethsemane. 
What did Mark just tell us? They're meeting in the high priest's house, not in the courtroom. The witnesses were all over the map. The witnesses couldn't line up in any kind of way, even in their fake stories. And they wanted the judgment now. We'll see that. They don't want to wait. They don't want to follow their own rules. So you can ask, are these leaders, these are the, the ultimate leaders of the nation, politically and religiously, are they following their own regulations and their own principles they have been trained with? Are they living according to their mission? Are they living according to who they are? They're supposed to bring real justice and truth into their culture. That's their job. Mark makes it clear to us that there's no desire for justice at all here, is there? He gives us the purpose statement. They're not looking for evidence so that they can find out what the truth is. <laughs> They're looking for whatever they can so that they can kill him. <laughs> they, want, they want him to die. These men have been frozen in their anxieties, I believe, and it has drawn them outside of who they are. They're not operating on the basis of who they are and who God has set them to be. They're reacting then in a way that seeks a return to the way things were. If we could just remove Jesus, we could get back to the way things were. And don't we always think things were better in the past? Hmm. So Mark says this whole trial thing is turning into a gong show. It's just, it's a, it's a play thing. He knows that. He says this is becoming fake. So he tells us this. Here we go in verses 60 to 61. The high priest then stood up before them and he asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? Aren't you going to say anything to defend yourself here? But Jesus remained silent. And he gave no answer. You feel that tension in that moment? Just feel the intensity. This is death penalty time. And there's the high priest. You, I bet his face was red. He's so upset. Even though he's trying to manipulate and tweak the system to his favor, he just can't get what he needs. So he says, are you going to say anything? And Jesus, I wish I could see a picture of his face right there. If we could get a snapshot of Jesus' face right then, that'd be a good thing to hang on our refrigerators and look at every day. Here's Jesus, silently staring into the high priest, refusing to answer him. I think you can feel his angst. Says the high priest. I think that the modern Portland, maybe the modern American mind, would prefer a Jesus who says something like this. Well, geez, this has really gotten out of hand. You know, Mr. High Priest, I see that you and your pals are kind of anxious about what's going on, and I just want to ask you, what would it look like for me to please you right now? How could I help you not be so upset? You know, how could I... This, you shouldn't be so mad that we don't need to have this going on. Let's just open up a conversation. I'm sorry I pressed at it like that. I'm, I, let's just back it up. Jesus is very different, though, isn't he? He sits quietly. Why do you think he stays silent? Why doesn't Jesus reply? 
wouldn't a kind-hearted dialogue actually help to move his mission forward better? I think that Mark has actually shown us why Jesus doesn't answer. Mark has portrayed a group of arrogant men who are in a panicked state. They want him dead. They can't figure out how to do it. It's going to start a riot if we kill him now. We got to do it in secret. Go at night to Gethsemane. Follow what Judas said. He's a good betrayer. Yeah. It's no small thing to be seriously plotting a murder. Even in this passage we just read, we see that they're looking for evidence to put Jesus to death. That's a lot different than looking for the truth so that justice could be served. And based on who Jesus is, I suspect that he would look at these guys with true wisdom and he would know even a very wise and helpful answer isn't going to help because we're not playing the game of seeking truth. We're playing the game of seeking death. Jesus, he'll play the game of seeking truth with you all day long. Seek the kingdom and you will find it, he says. You you actually do want to learn the truth. Jesus helps the truth to become known to you. But these guys are just playing a dog and pony show. They don't care about the truth. And so Jesus just stands silently. He knows of himself I am not one who plays the foolish games of this world. I'm not going to play this game. And so he stands in silence. His silence is raw, gnarly resistance to their anxiety-drenched culture. He stands in the face of it and says, No, I will not play that game. I'm not that guy. This is not my mission to play baby games, and on principle, I am not going to bow to you. I think this is, an, this is a really major, tense moment. So the high priest, of course, is provoked even further. <laughs> this is not the answer he was looking for. So the second half of verse 61 says, Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Are you, just say it, man. Are you or aren't you? Notice how the priest honors God with his lips here. He's very careful, as they all were, to not break the rule of using the divine name. They saw God's name, Yahweh, as so worthy of respect you would never utter it. Don't let it cross your lips. They'd call him the anointed one, they'd call him the blessed one, they'd call him the Lord, they'd call him these different words, but not his real name. So he, he holds true to the rules of respect and honor and goodness by making sure that he calls God by the correct name while he plans to kill God's son. The irony in that line cannot be missed. They're following the right, honorable, respectable rules while they're trying to kill Jesus. He brings glory to God by saying the blessed one instead of Yahweh. And he's doing it all in an effort to diminish and destroy God's very son. He uses all the right words to do all the wrong things. My friends, 
men and women here in this room, what religious assumptions and rules do we have that actually diminish or slaughter the power of Jesus in our world? We have to get really serious about that. Where is it that we're so excited to make sure we're seen and known as following the correct standards that we've created, even to the demise of the power of Jesus in our world? I think we should become a people who trust in, Je trust in Jesus, the one true God, more than our well-crafted traditions of honor and respectability. Well, the gauntlet has just dropped. Are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed one? Let's hear it. And notice there's still an out for Jesus in this moment, isn't there? Mark has showed us that even though they're pressing and working and manipulating in everything they can do, Jesus still stands before them as one they can't quite prove it. And so he asked them, who are you? Jesus at that moment could have denied it and saved himself. Right up to this moment, Jesus still has an out. But what does he say? Well, here we see the non-anxious Christ at his best. He bases his response with his identity, his mission, and the principles that God has trained him with. Ego a me, he says. I am. <laughs> Right there, he's dead. That's the cost. That's the cost of him living his identity out to the fullest. It's going to cost him his life. He knows it, and he says it. I am. This is who I am. This is my identity. Verse 62, I am the Messiah, the son of the blessed one. And then he ups the ante as if that wasn't enough. Then he says, and you will see the son of man sitting on the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Without hesitation, he self-incriminates and he owns his identity in God. Even more than courage, we see confidence here in God, don't we? Staring straight at a cross, which is a place of dying, you know. He knows that the cross is now not a distant reality, but it's right in his face. And he is still able to regulate his emotions enough to stay focused on God's promise. To not lose sight of the mission that God put him in the world to be about. To not drop the principles that were grounded in God's promises. What are some of those principles that Jesus is operating on in this moment? What are some of the things that he is making his decisions and, and he's acting out of? Well, I think he knows that in God your life is indestructible. Is that a principle that you live your life by? Do you literally live each day knowing that you're indestructible in the life of Christ? Jesus knows because he is bound to God's truth that this world is not random chaos going nowhere. There is a future, there is an end, and the people of God are part of that finished work. He's looking forward. Rather than just, I end at the cross, he's looking beyond it. 
Here's what you're going to see after all that. And then he knows that God cannot be moved by evil and he cannot be defeated. This world always tells me that it may or may not happen, right? For any kind of battle. Jesus knows that God rises victorious and he operates that way. And he knows that God is love and there is no fear in love. These are some principles that are driving Jesus. So when the hour is dark, he anchors back into who he is, what he's about, and these kinds of things. Do we get caught up in the anxieties and fears of the world and actually forget that we are indestructible, part of a created world that was created for a purpose that has a beautiful future that we're a part of? Jesus is brave. I think we can all acknowledge that. He's braver than me. Well, the high priest is pretty fired up at this point, so they try one more foolish baby game on Jesus. That's the blindfolding. You see it right at the end there. It was kind of common, I guess. They would blindfold a so-called prophet, and then based on his sense of smell or intuition, he was supposed to prophesy. It's kind of like an old-school witch hunt. And Jesus doesn't play does he? Mark doesn't record any prophecies of Jesus while he's blindfolded. There again, he remains silent. That's not who I am. I'm not playing your silly baby games. Well, then we get this meanwhile. So this is all going down. And then we have Mark saying, meanwhile, something else was brewing out there in the courtyard of the high priest. And he takes us to Peter. Now remember, facing death, Jesus is looking at the highest political and religious power in the land. Here's Peter, who's not facing death, who's being judged or on trial by, in that day, the lowest power in the land, a servant girl. We get to see how Peter responds. Verse 67, This is the servant girl. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. Well, you also were with the Nazarene, she said. Notice she hasn't called him a prophet or the Messiah or the Son of God like Jesus had to face. It's just you're with that guy from Nazareth, and we even know from the story that nobody really thinks Nazareth matters anywhere. What good comes out of Nazareth? Excuse me. Pardon me. But he plays dumb. So the first thing he says is, no, and then I, I don't know what you're talking about. I seriously, I don't, I don't even know who that is. He senses danger. He sees a potential loss. And a certain kind of anxiety grips him. It's an anxiety related to that scenario, an acute anxiety. So she hits him up a second time. She said, no, 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 this man is one of them. I'm sure of it. Now he doesn't play dumb, where he, does, where he doesn't say, gosh, I don't know who that is. Now he's just like, no, I'm not. Mm-mm. He just denies it, flat out. And then her own anxiety does what anxiety always does in a system or in a group. It infects. It's infectious, isn't it? We like it. It bonds us together. Anxiety makes us feel like we're one with each other. It's kind of like misery loving company. 
So it binds them all together. After a little while, in verse 70, it says, those who were all standing around now all have taken on her own anxieties, and they said to Peter, surely you are one of them. Well, you're a Galilean, aren't you? And now Peter's really feeling it. Man, I don't know this guy you're talking about. Leave me alone. May curses come down on me if I'm lying about it. Go ahead. That's how serious I am. I don't know him. Good grief, you people. You know? So he goes from, I don't know, to denying. And now he's calling curses down on himself if he would be lying. Well, what's happened? I think they themselves did not want to be associated with the criminal Jesus, Right? The group of people hanging out outside the high, they've seen all the hubbub and the Roman guards everywhere. They don't want to get joined up with this criminal. Now, Peter's a stranger in the group. They need to know, is he one of us or is he not one of us? It's based on his willingness to adapt to their desires. He is one of us if he thinks and acts and does what he's supposed to, which is not want to be associated with Jesus. And Peter feels that fear and that anxiety that they have. And rather than being rooted in his identity and his mission and his principles from God, he absorbs their fear. And now those govern Peter. So even though he's able to save himself in one sense, the Bible says at the end that he was broken. He absorbed their fear and then it broke him. And that's a really, really strong bit of language. He was a broken man. So he, in his mind, is trying desperately to save his own life. And, and his life, what he envisions his life to be, is so deeply rooted in the physical, I think. He forgets that deeper core part of who he is, and then that's what's broken. Almost immediately when he hears that rooster cackling, he says, oh no, what have I done? Realizing that he just betrayed Jesus. Mark 14, 72 shows us one of the most heart-wrenching scenes in the Bible. And Peter broke down and he wept. You can easily translate it, and he was broken. He himself was broken and he wept. Was this a calculated manipulation on Peter's behalf? No. Did he sit down and plan out his betrayal like Judas had? No, not at all. It was the intensity of the moment. He's simply reacting to the pressure that he's feeling. And he operates in a way that wasn't who he was. It was a reactive way. He feels and behaves like a man who is one with his surroundings instead of one with God. Jesus differentiates himself, doesn't he? He knows where he ends and the crowds and the mobs begin. So he's self-differentiated. He, he's not part of all of the anxieties that he sees around the world. doesn't mean Jesus doesn't suffer, but he's not taking on everybody else's fear. Mark has shown us a Jesus who freely chooses this route at every turn. He's not being forced into it. He's not being manipulated. Over and over again, Mark has made extra effort to tell us this is not an accident, and the only person in control here is God through Jesus. 
You and I have been taught by our world to believe that life in Christ is very restrictive and stifling. But I think anybody who lives with Jesus for real will tell you that only the exact opposite is true. Through the world's eyes, it looks like Jesus is getting totally hosed here, doesn't it? Restrained, arrested, chained down, sentenced to death. It looks like he's getting, you know, he's in trouble. But he's not at all. Through the world's eyes, it looks like Peter is escaping those chains. It looks like Peter's kind of getting out of a problem scenario, doesn't it? But he's not. Peter's not getting out of anything. Instead, he's broken there. I bet he's down on his knees in the dirt of the courtyard, heart-wrenched. Are we not all metaphorically huddled around the same fire pit out in that courtyard? That same kind of hostile context today? Isn't that our world? Do you and I not prefer the equilibrium and the tranquility in nice, cozy atmospheres where everybody's satisfied with us and what we're doing? If the world around us is so hostile, don't we prefer to not have to deal with that and just have nice, cozy equilibrium? Haven't we in so many ways worked throughout our entire lives to achieve that kind of serenity now? Oh, if only I could just, I'll do whatever it takes. We lie to one another. We're dishonest with ourselves. We pretend things just so we can keep that equilibrium nice and soft. Peter felt everybody else's stress and fear, and he turned his face toward their anxiety rather than turning his face toward God and hope. Aren't we all living right now in some of the most anxious times ever? Historians will tell you the world is changing more rapidly and more intensely, more significantly now than anything we've ever seen. You, you, I don't, you can't keep up. Change, 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 change all the time, and with every change, more anxiety comes. We're living in times of overwhelming, prolonged, chronic anxiety. What kind of church are we going to be? What kind of man will you be? What kind of woman are you going to be in this world? As your pastor who stands here before you and loves you, I am driven to say that nothing is going to kill our church and our mission alongside Jesus faster than absorbing the anxieties of the world around us. We're dead now if that's the route we're going to choose, so give up. We have to put an end to the fear-mongering and the, and the hand-clinging, fist-wrenching, Oh man, look at how bad it's all getting. That kind of banter is a foolish baby game for men and women who are bound to the life of this Jesus. If we allow ourselves to delve into that nonsense, we deny the power of Christ. We must live boldly in this world. And we must live with the world without becoming like it. 
Just as we see Jesus doing throughout his whole life and in this scene, he, is with, he has made a rugged commitment to the world to be for his people unto kingdom realities. That's our portion. We must live together on mission with Jesus as men and women who know our identity. We know who we are. We believe in the deepest place of our being that we are the sons and daughters of the Most High God. Jesus is able to live the way he does because he understands himself to be the indestructible son of God. Men, are you not indestructible sons of God? Women, are you not indestructible daughters of the Most High God? Will this not champion everything that you do in your life? This is the life we've been given. We must believe that in Christ, we are just as indestructible as he is. And this world can take nothing of value from us. We must know and believe and trust that this world is going somewhere beautiful into a glorious reality that you are an eternal part of. We must live according to who we are and according to the mission set out before us. According to those principles that Jesus gives us and he trains us with. And by doing so, we become a non-anxious church that beams like the sun itself through the darkness and chaos of our world. We're not the ancient Israelites or the Pharisees or the Sanhedrins or even the disciples in the early years complaining, self-preserving, whining, anxiously murmuring and grumbling about all these different things. Their chronic anxiousness blinded them. They saw no vision of God. They were confined to the place and the time that they lived. They couldn't see beyond it. They were enslaved to that anxiousness. But we are Christians. Our mission is to gospel in this world and live as Christ. And our principles find all of their root in loving God with everything we have and loving our neighbor as ourself. Is that what's driving what you're doing? We are Christians. Our goal is not self-preservation, which means that when God brings leaders into Central Bible Church, and it won't just be me, and they disrupt cozy equilibriums, we don't shoot them and destroy them and get them out of our midst hoping to get back to some kind of coziness. Instead, we say, thank you, Jesus, for disrupting us and waking us up to real life. We are Christians our posture is not to stand around nervous and worried about what to do in this world like I sat around snapping selfies while the fire was burning the house down. We don't sit there. No, we're equipped with the armor of God. We come to the scene fully equipped in his truth and spirit and we step into this city as a non-anxious church who refuses to absorb those anxieties around us, letting the world govern us. Is that not the essence of Christ-likeness for individuals and for the church itself? Hasn't Jesus called us out of the bland, boring, suffocating fears of the perishing world and into the vibrant life, the freeing life of Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, I cannot possibly begin to imagine what you felt standing there in that moment. 
Was it anger? Was it resistance? Were all those kinds of words just different angles to look at love? Help us to see your great love in all of its ferociousness and vibrance and complexity. Help us to be men and women who know who we are, who live with you on mission until the day we die, and who live according to the great principles that you've given us. Would you help us become this kind of a people here in Portland right now? Amen.